And we say here often at Chapel Street that we want everyone who comes here uh, to experience grace and grow in faith. Baptism is part of that. And to make an impact right where we are. And one of the ways we as a church family are trying to make an impact right now is through the Compassion International Project we've adopted uh, for just this time, this uh, holy time of Easter. Uh, many of you have been here the last couple of weeks. We've given you a chance to adopt a child in Ecuador as a support uh, in terms of supporting them and going to school, finding a church, their education, their health care, and all that. Uh, and we've been doing that for the last three weeks. Today's the last day that we're going to be giving you the opportunity to choose a child. But we have a short video for you to watch that describes the Compassion Project as we as a church try to make an impact. So watch this video. Growing up as a child, life was very hard. And many other times that if we didn't have food, then we'd go to scavenge in the, in the dumping sites. I didn't have food the day before, neither the other day before. I only knew that I was hungry and I needed food. As a child, I grew up with a lot of hopelessness and I knew that death was the best thing for me. At the age of seven, I lost three family members. I lost my mom and I lost my stepdad. I lost my small brother, Patrick, because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. In the middle of prostitution. Feeling so helpless. Poverty made me feel less valued. It made me feel not loved. It made me feel uh, less of a human. so hard when you have not eaten dinner and knowing you'll not have lunch and you're not assured for dinner the following day it's just feeling very helpless like things are not gonna be better i lost four of my siblings due to preventable diseases uh, three of them died before the age of five my sister we were sleeping with her in the same bed and she, she had died. Things changed later when I joined the program. When I started attending the Compassion Project, I was learning about the Bible, but the most important thing for me was that I was receiving food. I got an opportunity to go to school. Uh, with a pair of school uniform, with a pair of shoes. My mother heard about a church that worked with children. They're taking care of me, tutors, a pastor, a compassion director. Words are very powerful. My life was changed because someone told me, I believe in you, I love you, and I know you will succeed in life. My sponsor was a college student from Michigan, and in the first letter, she just told me that she wanted to make room for me. My sponsor, he was eight years old when I was nine, so he was one year younger than me. One decision to make room for one more changed my life. Saved my life. Saved my life. Will you make room for a child that needs you? Will you make room for one more? It's up to you. My name is Raphael. My name is David. 
My life was changed by a 26 years old college student. Her name is Joan. Gail and Roger. Her name is Jamie. My sponsor made room for one more. And that one more. And that one more was me. Was me. Sponsor a child through compassion today. Release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Greeting Chapel Street Church. Happy Easter. My name is Jonathan. And as you just saw, I was one of those children that someone made room for. I was born with all the odds not to be in front of you today. My dad wanted my mom to abort me. My mother's poverty affected me because of her lack of calcium. I spent most of my life walking without shoes. I was hungry for days. I worked as a dumpster diver. I spent part of my childhood selling juice on the streets. I was born out of my father's family and he hid me from them for 14 years. At the age of 12, he told me that I was a mistake in his life. And when I finally got into the Compassion Center, I spent five years fighting. I almost got out of the Compassion Center. Poverty was winning in my life. But God provided Jamie, my sponsor. When I was nine, he used my Compassion Center director, Dulce, to heal me and show me Christ. Through my sponsor letters, I was told that God is my father. I was not a mistake. I forgave my father and both share a good relationship today. I study public policy in Washington, D.C., and I hold a bachelor's degree in linguistics thanks to compassion. Most significantly, I am a follower of Christ, and I was baptized at the age of 12. My life changed because a mother from Michigan decided to make room for me. My mother graduated from university while I was attending the Compassion Center, and today she's a teacher. By the grace of God, I am a husband and a father of two. My second son is due this month. All of these, while I serve compassion in the Dominican Republic to release more children from poverty in Jesus' name. Thank you for sponsoring all these children from Ecuador and making room in your life for one more. God bless you. It's a great description and summary of the Compassion International Project. Uh, we as a church have decided to try to make room for not just one more, but 500 more. Uh, we have a long-term connection, relationship with the country of Ecuador, and we discovered there are some 500 children there that are yet unsponsored, so we made a commitment to try to see if we could close that gap during these, this, this Easter season. So if you'd like to get involved and, and sponsor a child, there's a table set out, out in the lobby. There'll be someone there to help you. Uh, there's pictures of children. There's packets. Um, we ask you to not take a packet home until you've decided to support them. And it's $38 a month, and you support that child. And then through that $38, they get uh, schooling, they get health care, and they get connected with a church family uh, like ours, but only in Ecuador. So if you'd like to stop by after the service, we invite you to do that. And we thank you for uh, your generosity there. Well, when our boys were all young, uh, we went through several phases of family pets. Uh, we had a lizard phase. We had a very brief turtle phase. Uh, we had a hamster phase. Did you go through a hamster phase of pets? Anybody have hamsters? Was that a good experience for you, having hamsters? 
We think ours was psychotic. We eventually graduated to a dog, our much-loved Labrador retriever named Mocha. You can think about that for a minute, who was with us for 10 years. But it all started with a fish phase. The very first fish we had at our home was a tiny guppy that one of our boys got in an adventure club for some reason, winning some contest or something, brought it home in a plastic bag, and we put it in a Cool Whip container with water. Uh, we eventually named that little guppy Spartacus because it lasted way longer than it really should have. <laughs> it was a survivor. Um, but eventually, uh, we upgraded to goldfish. In fact, we had a whole series of goldfish um, because we didn't have very good luck with goldfish. They didn't stay around very long. I'd bring home a goldfish, we'd name it, put it in our little tank, it'd be there for a few days, then inevitably the boys would find it floating on the surface and we'd have to have a somber bathroom burial at sea. And then I'd go looking for another goldfish. And finally I decided that the problem was the quality of goldfish I was buying and bringing home. So I decided to step up our goldfish game, and I bought a goldfish that was three times as expensive as the other goldfish. And it came with this unusual, really cool guarantee. The guarantee was that if something happened to that goldfish within two weeks, you could get a replacement goldfish for free. The only catch was you had to bring the expired goldfish back to the pet store, which I actually did once, walking in with my little baggie. After that, I decided that, that not to do the replacement goldfish anymore uh, because it, uh, it wasn't really fair to the goldfish. I mean, we really weren't very good at keeping goldfish. It wasn't fair. But secondly, I didn't necessarily think it was a good thing to be teaching my young boys that life came with a replacement guarantee. However, that's the very point of the story we celebrate today. Today we wrap up our series from the Gospel according to Mark, uh, following the King. And we look at the most important single moment in all of human history. Join me and look at the screens while I read from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, I'm going to pause there, think just for a moment about what that means. Okay, the Sabbath was the Saturday, and it's often called Silent Saturday because they put Jesus in the tomb on Friday evening, and then Saturday came. We know nothing about Saturday. There's not a single word written about what happened during Saturday. I think it had to be a day filled with shock, with sorrow, confusion, grief. Not unlike for us in the days between when we find out a loved one passes away and when we hold the memorial service, just this, this in-between time. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, notice here, uh, we know that the women predominantly were the last ones at the cross. The women were the last ones at the cross, and they are named. And now we see the women are the first ones to the tomb. Now, in that day and time, if you were making up this story, you wouldn't put women at both places because it wouldn't have made sense to the culture. But the women were there. There had not been time to anoint Jesus' body properly, because on Friday evening, the Sabbath began at sundown, and so they had to wait until Sunday morning. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The word there means greatly astonished, awestruck, even terrified. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now I'm going to make a quick comment here uh, about the rather abrupt end to Mark's gospel here. If you look in your own Bibles, you'll see that most of, our, uh, most of your Bibles have another section, a few more verses after verse 8. And there'll be a little tiny note saying that almost all the early manuscripts don't include that final portion of Mark that's in your Bible. And the reason is they think it was added a bit later to sort of soften the landing of the ending of Mark's gospel. Now that's a whole conversation for a different time, not our focus today. Today we're going to focus on Mark's original ending to his gospel. And I think the great story here in Mark starts with a question, a simple question. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who will roll away the stone? Now, I think uh, there are two levels of meaning here that we can see. First is the the literal meaning of the words. uh, Who will roll away the large stone that sealed the ancient tomb? Now, this is an ancient tomb discovered uh, near the modern city of Nazareth. Uh, It's not the tomb of Jesus, but it's likely very similar to that tomb. Uh, Historians believe these stones that sealed ancient tombs weighed between three and 4,000 pounds, roughly the size of a small car, and would have taken several strong men to move. So the women are asking a very practical question. Who's going to roll away the stone? How are we going to get into the tomb to anoint Jesus' body? But I think, secondly, we can see a a little deeper level of meaning here. I think it might be a spiritual meaning here. I think they might be talking about the stones that burden our hearts and our lives. One of my little theories is that we all go through life carrying a kind of invisible backpack with us. And those backpacks are filled with all sorts of stones of different sizes. Stones marked pain or regret or sadness or loss. And some are small. Some of those backpacks are small. Uh, You came in here with it this morning. You could slide it around under your pew. No one would even notice. And some of them are quite large and really heavy. And some of you might have struggled even to get here today dragging that around. Jesus actually talks about these stones, I think, in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Many years ago, uh, when I first arrived here as youth pastor, uh, a woman made an appointment to see me. Now, she had a daughter in our youth ministry at that time, so I just figured she wanted to talk about some issue that parents tend to be concerned about. Uh, But when she arrived, um, she talked, but not about anything in particular. She just talked, and she talked, 
And she talked some more. And she talked about her daughter. She talked about her husband. talked about her friends, about her church, about the weather. She talked about everything, jumping from one subject to another. And I had trouble like, keeping up with what she was, what she was talking about. And I, I couldn't even get a word in edgewise hardly. It was like trying to stop a moving train talking to this lady. I found a way to wrap it up and felt like I hadn't been any help to her at all. And then I decided uh, next week, she, uh, a couple weeks later, she called again. This time I decided... Okay, uh, I'm not even going to try to guide the conversation. I'm just going to let her talk and see where it goes. And I didn't say a word. And she sat down in my office and talked for 55 minutes. Straight. No gaps. Hardly taking a breath. At one point, I thought I might pass out, just trying to listen (laughs) to all that. And I found a way to wrap it up again, and she left. And I hoped she wouldn't call again, but she did. This time, I decided to do something different. I'd read some article somewhere about the way to deal with what are called pathological talkers is to, is to stop them every time they change the subject and make them go back and keep them, force them to stay on one train of thought. So I thought, okay, it's worth a try. So I tried that. She came in, and I interrupted her maybe three or four times. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Excuse me. You were just talking about your daughter. Can you go back to that and finish that thought? Oh, wait. Can you go back? I did it like four times in the first five minutes, and she burst into tears weeping uncontrollably. And then she told me that her twin sister had passed away when they were children, and her parents had refused to let her cry during the funeral. This was 50 years later. That poor woman was still was talking to avoid dealing with her unresolved grief. I think that's the stone of pain. Stone of pain. Listen to the Apostle John's uh, rendition of the same story, John chapter 20. But Mary, referring to Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Mary is confused, fearful, and brokenhearted. She's weeping. The angels say, Woman, why do you weep? Why are you weeping? Jesus asked, Woman, why are you weeping? And I think every parent of a young child has asked this question a thousand times, right? Why are you crying? Where does it hurt? Show me where it hurts. And Mary's weeping because she's carrying some heavy stones in her backpack. She's carrying, for example, the stone of grief. She's lost someone that she loved deeply. She's carrying the stone of despair because her hopes, her faith has been crushed, shattered. She's carrying stones of loneliness and fear, and the stones are heavy, and they weigh down her heart just as they weigh down ours. If I were to ask the question today, why are you weeping? Where does it hurt? What wounds do you carry around inside you? What wounds do you carry secretly? What losses do you grieve today? I think I get as many answers as there are people sitting in the room. Because we all have that particular stone in our backpack. 
But to each one of us, notice this story says, Jesus moves the stone of pain. He moves the stone of pain through the power of his presence. Notice, he follows, why are you weeping with who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Who do you hope can move the stone of your pain? And then he speaks her name, Mary. And when she hears him say her name, she recognizes him, and her pain is transformed into joy. Like the parent who scoops up a crying child. Show me where it hurts and comforts them until the whimpers and the crying turns to laughter. So Jesus says to Mary, I know you. I know your name. I know what hurts. I know your pain. I am with you. And more than that, I can help you carry your burden. I can remove your burden. If we go back to Mark 16, verse 4, it says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So even as these grieving women are asking the question, who will move the stone for us? It had already been moved. Jesus is the God who took on flesh, entered into our suffering, takes our pain onto himself. He's the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. He is the one who agonized in the garden. He is the one who became sin on our behalf. He is the one who knew the pain of rejection, who knew the pain of being mocked and insulted. And Jesus' suffering and death means for us that he has fully entered into our own pain and suffering, whatever that is. There's no depth to which we can go, no depth of pain that we can experience that he has not already experienced and knows. And then his resurrection means that Jesus speaks our names. He speaks your name this morning. So that's the question. And after the question comes a statement. And that's the second part of the story. A statement. In the summer I turned 10 years old. Two things happened that changed the way I saw the world. First, my grandmother uh, passed away from cancer at age 57. Uh, this is my grandmother holding me in 1956, shortly after I was born. She was my mother's mom, and we called her Mom-Mom, uh, and her husband we called Pop. They lived in the hills of eastern Kentucky where my mother had been raised. Um, we only saw her a couple of, every couple of years or so, so I wasn't terribly close to her. Um, and so when we went to the funeral, I remember um, being more fascinated by the whole process than sad. I remember it, but I don't remember any particular feeling. I remember being kind of, it was just interesting. <coughs> I watched my mother grieve, and I watched other family members grieve, but I didn't feel a whole lot myself. But shortly after we returned home, just a matter of weeks, uh, the second event happened, and that was our pet dachshund terrier that we named Sugar. They've been with our family for most of the 10 years of my life, who spent most nights sleeping in our bedroom, was hit by a speeding car right in front of our house. This is my brother and me with our little dog. And I can still see it in my mind's eye. Uh, the car just sp sped by, and Sugar was left lying in the road. She died instantly. And to this day, I can remember the impact that the stone of death had on me at 10 years old. I could feel the weight of that stone deep inside me. 
Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See where they laid him. He has risen. He is not here. Now, we all know that statement, but it's a curious and unexpected statement, really a terrifying statement at the time. These women knew Jesus had died. They had watched him die. They were the ones at the foot of the cross. They'd watched him struggle to breathe. They'd, watched, they'd heard him cry out, it is finished. They'd seen the Roman soldier jab the spear up through his ribcage into his heart to make sure he was dead. They had seen his lifeless body taken down from the cross, and now they carried the unbearable weight of the stone of death. Heavy, immovable, permanent. And I would guess... Most of you in this room know what that stone feels like. And yet, because of this statement, we can know that even that stone, the largest and heaviest stone of all, can also be moved. And in fact, has already been moved. Now make no mistake, uh, the center of the Christian faith is not about the ethical, spiritual teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As timeless and true as those teachings might be, that's not the center. The center is not the great traditions of the church, baptism or communion or any of our other traditions, as comforting as they might be. The center of our faith is death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. The outrageous claim that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead, sealed in an ancient tomb, rose again to life on the third day. Here's the thing. I think most people in our culture regard the resurrection story as kind of religious mythology. Kind of a quaint fairy tale that we remember once a year so we can put on new clothes make a nice dinner, hide a few eggs, and eat chocolate bunnies. And I would guess that it's not out of the reach of possibility. It's some of you walked in there this morning kind of with that, with that thinking. And here's how I know that. If people really believed, if people really knew and believed that the death of Jesus is as verifiable historical event as, for example, say, the assassination of Lincoln or the assassination of JFK, if people really believe that, and on top of that, really believe that the resurrection on the third day is also a verifiable historical event, then they would also believe it's the turning point of all human history. And they would believe it's the question upon which the eternal destiny of every soul hangs. And if people believe this, the churches in our land would be overrun. Not just on Easter, but every Sunday. They would be overrun at this news that changes everything, but they aren't. All the evidence says that churches in our land are in decline, most of them. Attendance is at an all-time low. Explain it the way any way you like, and many do, you know, 
theories like, well, the disciples all hallucinated together, or the body was stolen, or Jesus only fainted on the cross, or the whole thing is just a religious fabrication. But here's the truth. The resurrection of Jesus is our only hope for dealing with the stone of death. It's the only hope. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul himself says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Meaning, I've wasted my life, and you're wasting your time. Then he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You're doomed to drag that backpack around with you forever, because no one can take it away. And then he says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He wrote that in the first century when people who would have known better could have argued against it. People were still living who were witnesses, and no one did. Now think about this. If it did not happen in just the way I'm telling you this morning, none of us would be here today. And there's no way to explain the church over the last 2,000 years and the influence of Jesus throughout 20 centuries without the resurrection. There's no way to explain it. He is risen, and because he is risen, the stone-marked death has been rolled away. Already been rolled away. That leads us to the third part of the story, which is an invitation. A personal invitation. When I was in about the third grade, I started having trouble in one of my school subjects. I don't remember any longer which it was, probably math. Um, but instead of getting my usual A's and B's in class, and I was getting uh, lots of papers with like, D's and F's. Remember when they used to use uh, real letter grades? But I was getting a lot of D's and F's, papers with lots of red marks on them, and I didn't really understand what I was doing wrong. I was too shy to really ask, uh, and I was supposed to bring all my work home, but I was embarrassed. And, and, and a little bit of shame. My mom and dad wanted to see all my work to know how things were going in school. Uh, but something in me, even at age seven and eight, seven or eight, d- wanted to hide my failures from them. I didn't want my mom and dad to see that red ink and all those D's and F's. So I came up with a plan. I would show them the A's and B's, like always. But the other ones, I would sneak into my room and slip behind my bookcase dropping down behind the bookcase, and no one would ever see those papers. Now, as I remember, my plan worked perfectly for, I don't know, a week or two. Uh, one day I came home from school, and my dad was at home waiting for me. A little unusual, but nothing to be really concerned about. Sat me down at the kitchen table and started asking some questions. You know, how's school going? Hmm, I got a little more concerned, but uh, just said something, oh, school's okay. And then he said, uh, how are you doing in math? I got started to get more uncomfortable. Well, uh, okay, I guess, okay. Uh, now I'm starting to feel anxious. You know, why is he asking this? Did my teacher call, call him? Uh, but I said, doing fine. And then he pulled out the heavy artillery. He said, have you been showing us all your papers? And now I had to make a decision. Had my teacher called? But before I could think through all the implications, you know, I'm eight years old, I said, yes. And then my dad pulled out a handful of these red marked papers. Turns out that my mom cleans behind bookcases. (laughs) Who would have ever thought, right? But that's the stone marked failure. 
sin. Shame. Verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There, there you will see him, just as he told you. Did you notice two little unnecessary words? Two little words that seem out of place? And Peter. The angel already said, go tell his disciples. You know, that's, that's all of them. Go tell his disciples. Why mention Peter specifically? Why go tell his disciples and Peter? What do we know about Peter? Remember? Just three nights earlier, after promising Jesus that he would never fall away, they was willing to die rather than fall away from his Lord and Master. Within hours, he denied three times he even knew him. This is that Peter. So Peter's carrying this stone of failure, the stone of shame. The stone in Peter's heart's marked regret. It's marked shame. And my guess is there are plenty of backpacks, the invisible backpacks in the room this morning that carry stones marked with similar things. Regret or shame. But notice in the story, that stone too has already been moved. The stone that Peter's carrying has already been wiped away. Jesus has already wiped away his failure, wiped away his sin. He carried that stone with him to the cross three days before. Here's Peter hiding in fear and shame, holding on to his backpack, thinking he has to keep carrying that forever, that no one's going to release him from that. And with those two little words, and Peter, Jesus is sending his dear friend a message. And he sends the same message to us today, and that is, whoever you are, and whatever you've done, whatever's in your backpack, however far and long you've tried to run from your past, however deeply you've tried to hide your failure and shame, however heavy those stones are, through his death and the resurrection, he has already removed them. He's already taken them, all of them. You're already forgiven. A few years later, Peter himself wrote, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You can hear in those words, the backpack is gone. Just before 6 a.m. on Sunday, October 17, 2009, my cell phone rang. I was in my office already preparing for the services that day, for the sermon I was going to deliver, and my brother's name was on the screen, my old flip phone, um, and my heart jumped a little bit. Why would he be calling me this early on a Sunday morning? It was bad news. He said, Dad's had a massive stroke. Looks like we're going to lose him. First thing he said. He gave me a few more details about my dad. had collapsed in the middle of the night, had been uh, rushed to the hospital, stopped breathing in the ambulance, and the first neurosurgeon who had examined him told my mom and my brother that there was zero chance of meaningful recovery. The bleed was so bad. Now we were on the phone and we decided, we knew very well what our dad's wishes were. He told us many times he was ready to go, nothing heroic. So we decided right there on the phone, yeah, we, we'll let him go. 
So I hung up, called my wife who was out of town, called my oldest son who was in college, began formulating in my mind what I was going to say at his memorial service. Some of you know the rest of the story. Within minutes, my brother called back again, a second neurosurgeon, and looked at the images and said we'd given uh, uh, wrong information, that the bleed was on a different part of his brain, that he thought the condition was reversible. So to make a long story short, we gave permission for them to drill a hole in my dad's skull. It relieved the pressure. He woke, uh, two days later, he woke up from a coma and lived another 10 years of an active and full life. And today he's living in a memory care facility really near my, where my brother lives in Ohio. But what I want you to hear is the important part of that story is not that my dad recovered and had 10 more years. That's great news. That was great. We enjoyed that. We appreciate it. We're deeply grateful for that. But that's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is that when we believed that his earthly life was over, we were good. We grieved, we were sad, we wept on the phone, but we were good. Because Jesus had long since moved the stone of death for my dad. We knew that he was absolutely prepared, absolutely unafraid, absolutely certain of the promise of the resurrection. And the question is, do you know that with certainty today? Because you can. Because 2,000 years ago, a stone that sealed an ancient tomb, was rolled away. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth walked out of that tomb and into history and into the history of the church and into the hearts of all who receive him by faith and into this room this morning because he still moves the stone of our pain. He still moves the stone of our failures and shame. He still moves the great stone of death itself because he is risen. Hallelujah, he is risen. Would you bow with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the truth and power of what we celebrate today. That 2,000 years ago, the tomb that should have held your body did not. That the stone was rolled away. And that it means that the stone of our pain, the stone of our failures, the stone of our sin, the stone of death itself has been rolled away forever. Thank you that because that tomb was empty, we can know your life, your hope, and your promise today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.